The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Luke 4, 1-2 and 5, 27-29. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Good to be with you this morning. We are in week four of our series, Rhythms and Formation, talking about different spiritual practices that help us as followers of Jesus be with him. These different spiritual disciplines that we embody and live out on a routine basis that transform us and shape us more and more into who Christ calls us to be. And we're t- today we're tackling two more disciplines, those of fasting and feasting. We're looking at fasting and feasting. Now, in my experience, both in ministry and as a follower of Jesus, I would not say that fasting and feasting are our go-to spiritual disciplines of choice, right? So if you're in community group and you're talking to uh, somebody and I ask you, hey, how's your relationship with Jesus going? Like, how have you been doing with spiritual disciplines and all of that? Chances are you might talk about uh, your Bible reading and how you've been going, uh, how that's been going. You might talk about prayer and how you feel like your prayer life is doing. You might even, after two weeks ago, talk about your Sabbath and if you've taken a day off to rest in the presence of Jesus. But chances are, if somebody asks you in your group, hey, how are you doing with your relationship with the Lord? You're probably not going to say something like, man, I have been crushing it with the fasting game. Like I've just been killing it Monday. I didn't need all day. I just prayed. It was awesome. I've just been fasting so much with God. Or, or chances are, you probably won't say something like, oh man, Saturday night, we just feasted unto the Lord. Like we had some friends over, we read some Psalms, we sang some hymns, and we just ate some good steak and just celebrated Jesus. Like that's probably not what you're referencing. Fasting and feasting are probably not uh, your go-to spiritual disciplines of choice. Now I'm not saying that we don't fast or feast as individuals or even in our culture. I actually think we have categories for this. So when it comes to fasting, it's one of the latest diet trends right now. So you yourself, or you might know someone who has jumped on board with intermittent fasting. My dad jumped on this train about six months ago. It's this idea where you eat for eight hours out of the day, and then you fast for 16 to help you lose weight. Some of y'all might practice a partial fast where you've gone keto or paleo or vegan or gluten-free, not because of diet necessities, but just because it's something you wanted to do, or maybe you've done a juice cleanse or whatever. We have some concept of fasting in our lives and in our culture. I would also say that we have some concept of feasting. I think think it's pretty obvious. Our culture is pretty obsessed with food. Some of, if not the most popular shows on Netflix right now are shows about making food, cooking shows, baking shows. Everyone loves The Great British Baking Show. That's everyone's favorite Netflix show. I mean, we have an entire TV network dedicated to watching people make food. Not even food we get to eat. Like, we just watch them make it. Like, we, we're just like, yeah, that looks awesome, and we don't even get to taste it. It's so crazy. Lindsay and I right now, we have a list of places since we've moved to Charlotte that we want to go try and eat. But just because some of us might fast for diet reasons or we enjoy this idea of feasting, going out, having a really big or nice meal, doesn't mean we are practicing these as true spiritual practices. 
Fasting and feasting as spiritual practices are what we'll talk about in a second, supposed to be done with a Godward direction. Fasting and feasting, not just doing them, but actually doing them as spiritual practices, turn their attention and our attention towards God. And I would argue that we've lost these as spiritual disciplines. One pastor in talking about fasting in particular said it was, quote, the forgotten discipline of our age. In fact, if you look throughout church history, you see so much writing about fasting, starting with Acts and then moving to the early church fathers and then all the way up to men like John Wesley in the 1700s. And then if you keep reading in church history, it's almost like fasting just gets dropped off the map around 1850. No one really talks about it anymore. No one really points to it as a necessary or helpful part of the Christian life. I mean, even for myself, I grew up in a great Bible teaching, gospel fueled church. And I don't remember once hearing a sermon on fasting or knowing that we were going to fast as a church. It just wasn't a part of the Christian experience. It wasn't a part of life with God. So what I want to do today, just over the next couple of minutes, is I want to hopefully set a trajectory for us as individuals, but also for our church, that we would be a people that learn what it is to fast and to feast as spiritual disciplines. I want this to be a regular part of your life. I want this to be a regular part of the life of our church. So here's where we're going today. First, we're going to talk about what it means to fast biblically. And then we're going to talk about what it means to feast biblically. And then we'll end with talking about how the spiritual practices of fasting and feasting shape us away from the world and towards Christ. So biblical fasting, biblical feasting, and then both of those as spiritual formation. Here we go. Let's start with fasting. Here's our definition. Fasting is the intentional abstaining from food over a period of time for a spiritual purpose. Let me say that again, the intentional abstaining from food over a period of time for a spiritual purpose. Now, before we go any farther, I want to talk for a second about why we defined it this way. Why did we specifically mention food? Maybe you've heard it taught before that you can fast from a whole number of different things. You can fast from social media, television, alcohol, whatever, caffeine, etc. But, but here's why we wrote the definition this way. In the scriptures, fasting is mentioned over 75 times as a spiritual practice for the people of God. And of those 75 times, less than a handful refer to something other than food. The overwhelming majority of examples in the Bible, including the example of Jesus from Luke 4 that we'll look at in just a second, are fasting from food. You have examples of fast where people fast from just food, but they continue to drink liquid. You have fast where people fast from both food and water. There are fasts where people fast from not food total, but particular foods, like the example of Daniel in the Old Testament. But biblically, the overwhelming precedent for a fast is to abstain from food. Even in cases where other fasts are represented, like 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul talks about a married couple fasting from having sex to devote themselves to prayer. Even those examples are physical embodied practices. That's important to a fast. We'll talk about that more later. So the question is, can you do a biblical fast from something other than food? And we believe that there's Christian liberty here to say yes. Yes, you can practice a biblical fast from something other than food. And the goal for believers for followers of Jesus, is to get to a place where you can fast from food. We think that's an important part of the fasting experience as a spiritual practice. 
Now, in light of that, before we go any further, I want to take a second to talk to those of us who struggle with an eating disorder or an unhealthy relationship with our body or with food. And, and I'm not going to say what I'm about to say lightly. And I don't want to say it as, as just kind of flippant. I want, I want to say this as someone who has much love and grace for you as your pastor. And I also want to say it as someone who's not unaware of what you're facing. So from an early age, I spent the majority of my life as a bigger kid. Like just really from elementary school on, I was just heavier than the rest of my peers. So I spent the majority of my childhood, elementary, middle school, high school, known as the quote unquote fat kid among my friends. And I got picked on and I got teased and I heard every joke under the sun. And so what happened is when I got to college, I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. I just didn't want to be that. And so I thought in my mind that anorexia was the option. And so I spent and started what I would consider about 18 months of struggling and battling and living with anorexia. That was about 10 years ago, but that fight still continues today. I mean, even today, I struggle with the way that I view my body, hating how I look or being a particular size. I mean, as, as recently as a year ago, I even had to, to go to professional counseling to deal with some of my relationships and view of, of my body and food. And so I don't say any of this flippantly, but I do want to say it directly. This command to fast from food as a spiritual practice still applies to you. Even if you struggle with an eating disorder, even if you struggle with an unhealthy mindset or relationship to your body or to food, this command of God still applies to you. And there's Christian liberty and freedom based on where you're at right now in your life or even this month or this week to say, you know what, I'm just not in a good place right now. And so for this time, I'm going to choose to fast from something other than food. There's Christian liberty there and freedom there, but we need to be moving in a direction that seeks freedom and that seeks healing to be able to follow God in this way. And this was a lesson that was hard for me to learn, but here's what I need you to hear. When we use our own baggage, which is real and painful and hard, but when we use that real pain and baggage as an excuse to not obey the commands of God, that's dangerous. God commands his people to fast and eating disorders are real and dangerous. This is going to take some time. We need to get in community. We need to be working on this with the Holy Spirit and with others and trusting that God would lead us towards freedom and healing so that in the future we can fast from food with faith. All right, Matthew 6, passage we looked at last week on prayer. Jesus teaching his disciples. This is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. Let's look what the Bible says about fasting. Matthew 6, verse 16. Jesus says, and when you fast, all right, pause right there. First thing we see is that Jesus expects his disciples to fast. In fact, in Matthew six, Jesus actually gives three when statements that show basically his expectations that he has for his disciples, for his followers. So in Matthew six, two, he says, when you give to the needy In Matthew six, five, he says, when you pray and in Matthew six, 16, he says, when you fast. Giving, praying, and fasting are expectations for followers of Jesus. So much so that Jesus just assumes that if you're my follower, you're going to do these things. Jesus' concern isn't if we are fasting, because that's an assumptive. His concern is rather how or why we fast. He's trying to get after the heart behind our fasting. And that's why he continues. Verse 16, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. 
Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now we have to hold these three verses in tension with the rest of scripture. So elsewhere in the Bible, we see examples of whole entire communities fasting together. So Jesus' concern isn't that no one finds out that we're fasting, that no one knows that we're doing this, but rather what Jesus is teaching here is that the goal of fasting is not a religious show, rather it's deep communion with God. The goal of fasting is not a religious show, it's deep communion with God. And there's some specific ways we see in the Bible of how that plays itself out. Some specific directions that our communing with God takes. There's at least 10 in the scriptures that we see different things that people are fasting about and fasting for. But I want to look at four, four examples we see in scripture that I think are pertinent to our church and to our cultural moment right now. Here's the first. We fast to seek God's direction. We fast to seek God's direction. So this is biblically the most common reason for fasting. And it might be one that you're slightly familiar with. We see this throughout the early church, specifically in Acts 13 and Acts 14. The early church is raising up leaders and they're getting ready to send out missionaries. And so they fast and they pray. And as a result of their fasting and praying, they send out Barnabas and Saul, who becomes Paul, to to plant new churches. And out of their fasting and prayer, the Lord moves and the Holy Spirit works and hundreds of churches are planted in the gospel spirit spreads. They fast. They seek the Lord in fasting to get his direction, to get his guidance of where they should go and take the gospel. So if you're struggling with the decision, if you're wondering what it is the Lord has for you, if you're trying to determine his will, turn to fasting. It's not a guarantee. It's not a formula that you just plug and play. So don't, can't expect, Hey, I fasted about this. I prayed about it. God's just got to show up and tell me exactly what to do. But we are called to fast and pray as a means of opening ourselves up to the guidance and direction of the Holy spirit. We want this to also be a part of the life of our church. Already in our, our few short months being a church, we've already taken a few days where we've stopped and we fasted and we've prayed together to seek the Lord's will about jobs to seek the Lord's will about a meeting space, to continually we want to be a church that fasts and prays to seek the guidance of God. It's the first reason. We fast to seek God's direction. Second, we fast to express our repentance. We fast to express our repentance. Joel 2. Old Testament, the Israelites had, had disobeyed God. They've rebelled against him. And God says that there's punishment coming. They deserve to be punished. They've rebelled against their creator, against their Lord. But here's what he invites them into Joel two, verse 12. He says, yet even now declares the Lord return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This is a theme we see throughout the Old Testament and the prophets in particular. Part of the way we show the seriousness of our sin, of our guilt, of our conviction to sin is that we fast. This is not a means of some penance of trying to pay God back by showing how sorry we are by giving up food. But this is a means by which we say, Hey, my sin is a big deal and I'm experiencing conviction from the Holy spirit. And I've rebelled against a holy God. 
So we, we fast. We fast as a means of expressing, hey, this is a big deal before God, and I'm owning my sin, and I'm taking it seriously. That's number two. We fast to express our repentance. Number three, we fast to increase our dependence on the Holy Spirit. We fast to increase our dependence on the Holy Spirit. Luke 4, 1 and 2. Jesus uh, in Luke chapter three is baptized. This is a beautiful moment where God, the father speaks. You're my son whom I love. I'm well pleased with you. The Holy spirit descends on Jesus as a dove. And then we see before Jesus starts his earthly ministry, he's led into the desert. And this is what it says in Jesus full of the Holy spirit returned from the Jordan and was led by the spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil he ate nothing during those days. When they were ended, he was hungry. So Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. He's there for 40 days. He's fasting. And the text says during these days of fasting, Jesus is being tempted by the devil. Right? So picture this scene. Jesus, son of God, is starving in the wilderness. And the devil just keeps pestering him. And we have, if you read the next 11 verses, three examples of those temptations, but there's probably many more that Jesus faces. Time and time again, the devil tries to get Jesus to give up God's plan, to give up God's kingdom, and to establish his own rule and reign, but Jesus isn't having it. He keeps quoting scripture to basically say, back off, devil. This is not how it's going to go. Fasting is a means by which we can lean more into the power of the Holy Spirit, particularly in our fight against temptation. We commit ourselves to the Lord in such a way that we renew our fight for, against sin and for holiness. So number three, we, fight to, we fast to increase our dependence on the Holy Spirit. Number four, we fast to fight for justice. We fast to fight for justice. Isaiah 58, six and seven. Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry or bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? I think fasting to fight for justice, like we read about here in Isaiah 58, is so crucial right now for this cultural time that we're in. As the horrific reality of racism on an individual level and on a systemic level was brought back into the forefront of public life, as we're being hit in the face by the reality of sin and brokenness in our world, as it just feels like our collective outrage and anger and hatred towards each other is just at a boiling point. The, the call of justice for the church and for the Christian is synonymous with a call to fasting and prayer. Make sure you got that. Let me say it again. The call of justice for the church and for the Christian is synonymous with a call to fasting and to prayer. We see this moment that's happening in our nation and in our world right now. And everyone else runs to their social media accounts to post and repost. Everyone else runs to the protests. They run to anxiety. They run to stress, however they think they can manage it. And we, as the people of God, with a desire for justice within our hearts, are called to first and foremost run to fasting and to prayer. If you want to see justice done, you want to see unity brought back. If you want to see the poor cared for, the marginalized welcomed in the first cause to fast and pray. It's the first step, the first move towards justice for the believers to fast and to pray. 
That's why we fast. We fast to see God's direction. We fast to express our repentance. We fast to increase our dependence on the Holy Spirit. And we fast to fight for justice. Let's turn our attention now to feasting. I've been saying throughout this series that that our God, if you look at scripture, our God is a God of symmetry and rhythms, night and day, light and dark, rest and work, Bible, hearing from him and prayer, him listening. And the same is true of fasting and feasting. Fasting and feasting are meant as symmetry within our lives. They create rhythms, abstaining and fasting, partaking through feasting. So if fasting is the intentional abstaining from food over a period of time for a spiritual purpose, feasting is the opposite. Feasting is the intentional partaking of food to celebrate the goodness of God. The intentional partaking of food to celebrate the goodness of God. Look with me at Luke chapter five. So Jesus gets tempted in Luke chapter four. He's in the wilderness. His earthly ministry starts. He's going around gathering his disciples, gathering his followers, doing acts of miracles. So we read in Luke 5, 27. And after this, he, he being Jesus, went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. So Jesus bursts onto the scene of Levi's life, a tax collector, hated by his own people, the Jews, used and despised by the governing nation, the Romans. I mean, just the worst of the worst in this society. They were traitors. They were pushed aside. They were outcasts. And we have no idea about Levi's backstory besides that fact. We know that he's a tax collector and that's about it. We have no idea what's going on in his head, in his heart. We have no idea what's led up to this moment. All we know is that Jesus shows up on the scene, says, follow me. And Levi gives up everything and immediately follows him. The goodness of Jesus bursts into Levi's life. And then here's what happens as a result. Verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Feasting celebrating. Jesus enters into Levi's life and Levi responds by feasting, by marking the goodness of God through good food and good drink. And this was a rhythm of God's people in the Old Testament as well. The Israelites had so many feasts that celebrated what God had done for them. So the the Jewish people, these first followers of God, they had the Passover feast where they celebrated God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They had the Feast of Booths, where they celebrated God's leading them in the wilderness. They had a feast called the Feast of First Fruits, which is basically them just saying, yay, there's a harvest. God made some plants grow, and we have some food. They had so many reasons. They just kept on feasting. Every time God showed up, every time God did something, they're like, you know what? Let's feast. Let's celebrate what he has done for us. We see this response even at the heart of God story of the prodigal son, Luke 15, the the wayward son who runs away, who squanders his inheritance, who rebels against his father, gives away or gives up all of his money. He finally returns home, beaten, full of shame and guilt. And what does the father who represents God in the story do? He, He throws a feast. I mean, even Revelation 19, Right, The future promise that one day Christ is going to return and he's going to establish his forever rule and reign and everything is going to be made new and everything is going to be good and right and as it should be. And the marker of that newness, the marker of the new heavens and the new earth is a celebration and a feast. It's the wedding supper of the lamb. This is what the people of God do. We see the goodness of God. 
particularly in how it's shown us through Jesus, through his life, death, and resurrection. And we mark that through feasting, through celebrating, through good food and good drink. I love the way Harold Best puts it. He says this, Christians should be as delighted in the things of sight and sense as God is himself. With the instant of every creational act, he declares goodness to be observable, enjoyable, and usable. Of all people, Christians should have the best noses, the best eyes and ears, the most open joy, the widest sense of delight. That the opposite is often the case is no fault of the Lord's. We're invited through the spiritual practice of feasting to delight in the goodness of God in a tangible, embodied way that engages our senses. That's such a gift. Not just eating to eat, not gluttony, not just gorging ourselves, but eating as a means of thanksgiving and praise to God. This is the spiritual practice of feasting, to remember what Christ has done for us, to remember his life, death, and resurrection, that for all of us who are followers of Jesus, that has purchased our redemption, made us right with God, and we get to mark God's goodness through Jesus and at other points in our lives through feasting, through eating good food, drinking good drink. That's fasting and feasting, abstaining for the glory of God, partaking for the glory of God. So let's, let's move now to how do these practices shape us, right? How do fasting and feasting in a Godward direction, how do they actually shape us and form us away from the world and towards Christ? There's three specific ways, three specific ways I want to look at that fasting and feasting shape us or help us fight against the cultural narrative, help us fight against how we're not shaped into the image of Christ. There's three, three different ones. First, fasting and feasting help us fight against the disenchanted world. Fasting and feasting help us fight against a disenchanted world. All of us living in the secular West are tempted to believe we live in a disenchanted world. What I mean by that is a world devoid of anything supernatural, particular God, a God who is living, who is active, who is working and present, a disenchanted world, which we're tempted to believe and told to believe is uh, the lie that God doesn't exist. And if he did exist, he's not actually doing anything. It doesn't actually affect our day to day that spiritual forces only exist in fairy tales. And so if we believe that we live in a disenchanted world, then there's no reason to practice fasting and feasting. We don't need to fast because we don't need to seek God in prayer because there is no God who can or wants to work in our lives and in the world. We don't need to feast because God hasn't been good simply because God hasn't been at all. So this food on our table, it's, it's simply a process of science. People planted the crops, some rain came because of high pressure and low pressure systems. They harvested it, they manufactured it, they packaged it, they sold it, somebody bought it and somebody prepared it. That's all there is. There's no need to celebrate this before God. Fasting and feasting helps us push against this idea because it makes us pause and it makes us remember what's right in front of me is not all there is. It's not just a material world that's right in front of me. Fasting and feasting reminds us and reshapes us towards the reality that there is a God who is active and moving and working, who's active in our lives and in the world around us. And fasting and feasting reminds us to seek him and to celebrate him. It's the first thing. The second thing that fasting and feasting helps us fight against is a disembodied spirituality, a disembodied 
spirituality. We, we've talked about this before back in our series on First Timothy. This one is kind of less out there cultural influence and more just in here. I don't think as the church that we have a really good theology of the body for the tangible and physical stuff of life. And so what happens is we tend to default to think that our faith, our relationship with God is strictly matters of our head and our heart. So our relationship with God, our spirituality, our faith is just a matter of what we think and what we know and what we feel and what we believe, which we think is just this essence of our, of our heads, emotion, knowledge. That's, that's all it's about. And what that means is that subtly we begin to believe that our body is unimportant or negligible. So food is just food and the means by which we partake in or don't partake in food is strictly a physical thing with no spiritual connotations or power at all. Again, fasting and feasting helps us fight against that. Fasting and feasting reminds us that our bodies and what we do with them matter to God. And it connects our faith that we think lives up here into an embodied lived experience. It moves our spirituality, our faith, our relationship with God out of just some thought world and into our very bones. Connects what God is doing around us to our embodied and lived experience in the world. In other words, it moves us from an attitude of, okay, I'll just pray about it to know I'll actually embody this. I'll feel it on a tangible level in my gut. It moves us from, okay, I'll pause and I'll give God some thanks with my thoughts or with my words to no, I'll actually give God thanks by engaging all of me, including my senses, including what I do on a physical level with my body. It reminds us that what we do with our bodies matters to our relationship with God. This is part of why, we said it earlier, this is part of why fasts from things like social media and phone and entertainment, et cetera, are good, but they don't fully get at the goal of fasting because while those are a denial of self and it's good for our minds or for our hearts, it doesn't engage the body in the same way that fasting from food or drink does. When we fast from food or drink, it engages us on a different physical level that reminds us faith is an embodied thing. Our bodies matter to God and how we spend our days in our bodies matter to God. The second thing, the third thing that fasting and feasting helps us fight against is this, a discontent life, a discontent life. This one is probably the most powerful. See, we live in a culture and world of more, a culture that can honestly be described at best as hedonistic or gluttonous. A culture driven by excess where the, the driving decision makers we live with are dominated by two questions. When you go through your day, you are tempted to go, be governed by two questions. Number one, how do I feel? And number two, what do I want? That's it. That's the governing decision makers we live with. How do I feel and what do I want? And so what that means is there's a distinct lack of being content with what is before us and with what we have. Or think about it this way. The highest ideal or value right now in our society is freedom. What we say when we say freedom in our culture is individual and totalitarian freedom. It means I'm an island unto myself that only has to answer to me and I'm free to go after what I want, when I want, how I want, and anyone who tries to stop me or tell me no is holding me back or keeping me from being me or is a hater. We live discontent trying to grasp for more, which means it's hard, especially to biblically fast because we don't have a category for willingly saying no to ourselves. We're shaped in such a way that we think, why would I ever deny myself willingly something that I want? Like, why would I ever choose to lay down a want or a need? And that's what fasting calls us to do. 
Fasting calls us to willingly say, no, I'm going to say no to this and abstain from this so that I can seek God. While the world screams for more, for freedom, for indulging every desire and whim, fasting in particular teaches us to trust God and say no to ourselves. Here's an easy way to think about it. Fasting strengthens our say no to self muscles. Fasting strengthens our say no to self muscles. Teaches us to deny ourselves and seek God instead. It trains us to deny our every whim and impulse and submit our desires to the kingship of Jesus who rules and reigns over our lives. As we learn to give up and say no to food for a time, we grow in our ability to say no to our desires, especially those that are sinful that rise up in our lives because of our sin nature. And so when we willingly learn to say no, I'm going to say no to food, we are strengthening our ability to say no to the things that are not of God. If you can give me a second, let me preach. Let me really go for it here. I need you to hear this. If you are struggling with a particular sin, if you're like, man, I'm just, I just can't stop. I've been dealing with this thing for months, for years, for year after year after year. I just can't seem to say no. If it feels like you're showing up to community group every single week and you're bringing the same thing and it feels like there's no progress being made at all. I keep having to confess this. I keep having to confess this. I keep having to confess this. Here's your next step. Fast. Fast. Fast, learn to say no to something that is good and okay like food so that you can actually strengthen your ability to say no to your sin. Listen to me, if you are like, man, I'm just at the end of my rope. I just can't do it anymore. I just can't say no to this thing anymore. Listen, gotta learn how to fast. If you're not fasting, if you're not putting in this spiritual practice into your life, you are not giving yourself and affording yourself every opportunity there is to say no to your flesh. You have to learn how to fast. It's the way that you fight and push back against your sin. I'm going to give free, free reign here in your community group this week. If you're in Engage the Heart time this week and somebody in your time where you're split up, men and women, and somebody shares something and it's like, dude, this is the 20th time you've shared this. Here's my invitation. Tell them to fast. Tell them, all right, before next week, you got to fast. You got to start putting this into practice. You got to learn how to say no to yourself because you keep saying yes in this area. God tells you to stop saying yes. And so learn to say no so that you can learn to say no. It's the gift of fasting. Let's get serious about fighting our sin. Listen to me. If you're struggling with anxiety, fast. If you're struggling with apathy towards the things of God, you just don't care, fast. If you're struggling with lust, fast. If you're struggling with anger, fast. If you're struggling with greed or pride, fast. Let that be a necessary and needed step you take in your fight against sin and towards holiness. Fasting and feasting. It helps us fight against a disenchanted world. It helps us fight against a disembodied spirituality. And it helps us fight against a discontent life. We have a ton of practicals on fasting and feasting, types of fasts, how to fast, especially how to fast safely if you have a history of disordered eating or an unhealthy relationship with food. Some really practical, here's some steps towards freedom for you. We have all that stuff on our guide, Rhythms and Formation. Com. I would encourage you to check that out. But here's where I want to close. Look back with me at Luke 5. That's where I want to, want to end us. Luke 5, right after, or actually during the feast that Levi is throwing. So Jesus enters his life, come and follow me. Levi's like, yep, let's do it. I'm in. I'm going to follow you. He throws a big feast at that feast and religious leaders show up. And here's what happens. Luke 5, 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, 
Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So at this feast, Levi is throwing, Jesus is confronted by these religious leaders. And they're like, hey, John, talking about John the Baptist, his disciples fast. Why don't your disciples fast? Jesus responds by saying that while he is there with them, they don't fast. He uses the analogy of a wedding feast. No one fasts at wedding feasts. That's a silly time to be on a fast is when you're celebrating a wedding. But he says there will come a day when he's taken away and then his disciples will fast. Church, in the gospel of Jesus, we see every reason and motivation to feast and to fast as the people of God. We feast because Christ has won the ultimate victory. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit and all who put their faith and hope in Christ are brought into the kingdom of God. And so the gospel is true and God is good, which means we can feast no matter what is happening in our lives, the highs and the lows, the mountains and the valleys, the good and the bad. We have the gift of Jesus. And so we can feast and remember how good God has been to us and how good he still is, even in the middle of life's struggles. But we also fast, recognizing God's kingdom is an already but not yet kingdom. That God's kingdom and his grace is bursting forth in our world and in our lives, but Jesus has still not yet returned and things are still not as they should be. And so we fast, remembering the suffering of Christ on the cross, remembering there is still pain and sin and rebellion and brokenness in our lives and in the world. And fasting and praying is our way of remembering, hey, this is not as it should be and longing and hoping for the day that Christ returns and that that would come soon. So while we're in this already but not yet kingdom where Christ has come, but he's also going to come again, we get the gifts and the practices of fasting and feasting, abstaining and partaking for the glory of God. Let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. And thanks for the, the practices of fasting and feasting. You invite us into, you call us into, that we can abstain from food to seek you, to seek your face, to seek your guidance and direction, to fight against our sin, to repent, to, to seek justice. You also invite us into the gift of feasting, to engage our senses, to celebrate good friends, celebrate with good food and good drink, all as a way of remembering the goodness of you, the grace of Jesus for us. God, we love you. Help us to step into these practices this week. Help us to make the necessary sacrifices. God, would you help those who are struggling with uh, disordered eating, struggling with their relationship or view of, of their body or food? God, would you help them experience freedom to take the necessary steps, to bring it to you, to bring it before others, to start to get some healing? And would you let fasting be uh, just a gift to them that they learn to step into more and more as they experience the healing of the gospel? Oh, we love you. We need you as we step into these practices. It's not about doing them. It's about communing with you. Help us to remember that. We love you. Probably listen in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue to worship together this morning.